Open your Bibles with me uh, to the book of Romans, chapter 8. We're going to wrap up our studies in Romans 8 this morning. We've been here for a couple of months. This is our seventh study in this glorious chapter. Just as you, if you've been with us in these studies, this thing is packed. Well, the book of Romans is packed anyway, as it is. Uh, so we're going to take a look at this. You know, I, I've, I've titled the study The Top of the Mountain for a reason. If you remember our first study, uh, that it, we called it Base Camp. <laughs> and we've used this metaphor of climbing Mount Everest and, and taking several hikes up the mountain as we, as we mine the truths of Romans 8. And, and we're at the top. <laughs> we're there. We've summited the mountain uh, with this final study. And, and truly, the way that this chapter lays out is the last three verses are absolutely glorious. And uh, you'll see as we get there. We've got a lot of ground to cover this morning. But as we wrap this chapter up, I want you to understand the Apostle Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has been working towards... Really, a, a strong, overarching conclusion. And it's been, it, it's derived from the points and the things that he's been saying along the way. He has been piling on one doctrine, one concept, one teaching after another from the beginning of this book. And it brings us to this point at the end of this chapter. Uh, glorious, as I said. Here's a breakdown of uh, verses 31 to 39 that we're looking at this morning. In 31 to 35, the apostle asks seven critical questions. Some are rhetorical, some not. But uh, they're questions that we really need to take to heart. In verse 36, it's interesting because the apostle Paul was a man of God's word. He understood the power of the word of God. And in verse 36, he goes back to Psalm 44 as support for the things that he's saying. That was their Bible at the day. So he's he's saying, look, this is what God's word has to say about this. And then verses 37 to 39, as I mentioned, they're really essentially a shout of triumph from the top of the mountain. So let's read verses 31 to 39 together, then we'll come back and take a look. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Is it God? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. And furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities, excuse me, Uh, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That 
<laughs> is a bunch. And we're going to do our best to work through it this morning as we go. And I want to get right into these seven questions that he asks. In the first one, in, in the first part of chapter or verse 31, he says, what then shall we say to these things? And it begs the question, what shall we say to what things? What's he talking about? And the answer, really, you have to reach back. I've mentioned before, if you start establishing what you're talking about now uh, on the context or in the context of Romans, you end up going back to the very first chapter. And we're going to just kind of fly over these first uh, eight chapters together as we look at some of the high points, because he gets right to, he does a kind of a lengthy introduction in chapter one, as he sets up who it is that's writing to them, and that he longs to come and to minister to them and all of that. And then after that, he gets right to the heart of why he's writing. And in chapter one, verses 16 and 17, he says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first, also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God, hold on to that. That's a theme that runs all the way through the book, through the letter. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Folks, this is the heart of the gospel message. It doesn't get any deeper than this. Uh, This is the, I mean, it is central to everything that we understand about Christ, everything we understand about the cross, everything we understand about the Apostle Paul's writings and the other people who wrote in the New Testament. It's the gospel. After this, he sets about telling them and us about the inner workings of this good news. That's because that's what the word gospel means. It means good news. What's interesting, though, is in the very next verse, in chapter 1, verse 18, he gets right into bad news. And I'm convinced, after having studied this uh, for a few years, that the, you really can't appreciate the good news until you understand how bad the bad news is. And he spends the next three chapters talking about it. So in, in, he's talking about how this applies to every single human being. It's nobody gets off. It's equal opportunity condemnation. And as we go through it, and as we went through it, we saw that uh, this is something that applies to all men. In 118, he says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So this first section Uh, In the book of Romans, it continues from here through chapter 3, verse 20. That's And and, and in it, the Apostle Paul reveals in vivid detail the utter depravity of men's and women's hearts. Uh, From the godless pagan who shakes his fist at God. He he goes from there, he goes into, he talks about the moralist. the, The person who may live by a high moral standard, but is rejecting Christ in the inward man or woman. He talks about even the religious person uh, relying upon rites and rituals and heritage. Uh, we've looked at that. We've looked at how what religion does is says, well, you know, if you observe this rite, infant baptism, then you're in. And, and as we begin to understand that the gospel requires a response, we see that that just biblically, that just can't be so. And he exposes all of that. Essentially what he says in these three chapters is that nobody gets a pass. Nobody. 
So we discover in 118 to 320 that all humanity stands condemned, subject to the wrath of God. He talks extensively about the wrath of God, not just abiding on an unbeliever's life, but you actually store wrath up. You are actually increasing wrath to your account as you live outside of Christ. Amazing. Then in chapter 3, verse 21, Paul pivots, starts a new section that goes through chapter 8, verse 30 that we looked at last week. Uh, and, and he, in this section, he goes through, he outlines, and we, I'm going to put this right because I don't want it to make it sound like we have a works-based salvation. He outlines the transactions through which God has addressed our sin and how he's reconciled us or anyone who would come by faith to Christ. It's always God's grace that, that we come into by faith. That's why he says the just shall live by faith. In chapter 3, verses 22 and 23, he tells us it's all about the righteousness of God. Why is that? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, that unless you're Righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders who thought they could make their own. You will in no way see the kingdom of heaven. Not possible. You can't be good enough. You can't live well enough. You can't be moral enough. You can't be religious enough. Solely on the basis of God's grace poured out on our lives. He says in uh, in uh, verse 22, it's the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction He says, nobody gets off. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So first, in order to come into a relationship with God, we see that you must possess righteousness. Remember, he talks about that. He he talks about the righteousness of God as he puts forth the gospel there at the very beginning in chapter 1. Jesus pointed out the futility of, of the religious leaders of his day trying to make their own. I mean, you look at the seven woes that he pronounces on these guys in Matthew 24, and it's it's just amazing that they thought that they were right with God. And that's what righteousness is. It means right with God, to be put in a place of being right with him. Utterly futile to try to make our own. True righteousness, the righteousness of God that Paul talks about here in Romans, can only come through the cross, Period. So then in 623, and we're still talking about, so what should we say to these things? These are the things that he's talking about. In in 623, he contrasts what, what we see there is the wages of sin. What's a wage? It's something you earn with the gift of God. He says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So regardless of the scope of somebody's sin, the penalty... The wages of sin is death, eternal separation from God. It's not talking about physical death. Remember when Adam and Eve, God said, you know, the day that you eat of that tree, you'll surely die. They didn't die that moment, but they were separated from God. There is a spiritual death that's being talked about. And that's a thread, again, that runs all through God's word, eternal separation from God. The Bible refers to that in the book of Revelation as the second death, the remedy the gift of God, eternal life, living forever. So we call salvation. That's the contrast. And again, these apply to every single one. 
You're not less dead, by the way, if you sinned less in this life, less than the next guy, that person, that really terrible person that lives next door. (laughs) You're not, it just doesn't work. Nor are you more alive if you were, quote, a good person. How many times I've heard over the years, well, I'm a good person. And there's times where I want to go, you know, bravo. But the point is, it's not about, I mean, that's what the rich young ruler said to Jesus. He said, uh, essentially, I'm a good person. I've, I've done all this stuff. What else do I need to do to inherit eternal life? If that's for me, Tom will call him back. So from 3.20 to 8.30, we've seen it's not about coming to Christ and then living the same old life. Remember, we've talked about that, that there is a different kind of life that he offers, that he instills in the lives of every true believer, every true child of God. Whether you were a pagan previously, or a moralist, or a religious person, he says it's not about all that. It's not about the flesh. We looked at the flesh. It's about a new creation. It's about God seeing me cleansed from that old life. So the transaction begins with being justified, to be given a permanent right standing before God, which is the definition, as I mentioned, of righteousness, and then being sanctified. What it means is sanctified, sanctification means is to be cleansed. So at the moment of my salvation, I have been cleansed through the death of Christ positionally at the moment that I received him, that I turned from my old life. We also saw and have been looking at, and right up through this chapter that we're in, that it's about being sanctified, being cleansed, having been cleansed through his death, and now being cleansed by his life. Because the resurrected life, the Holy Spirit comes, indwells every believer, and so we are being cleansed. We are being renewed. We are we are being, we are growing. And folks, if you have a theology that doesn't involve growth, it's a wrong theology. All of us are being, as we looked at last week, conformed to the image of his son. So we looked more recently here in chapter eight at suffering as a child of God. He, he, he talks about that. And then he gives three sources of hope that we have believed as believers that we possess. We possess a future hope. Remember, he says that the the sufferings of the present time aren't worthy to be compared to the glory that's to be revealed in us. Fabulous truth. We also looked at last week, we looked at the, the fact that we have a present hope through the work, through the agency of the Holy Spirit dwelling within. He gives us hope. He gives us strength. He gives us peace in the storm. He is the, he is the helper, the paraclete, the one that comes alongside the one that gives us understanding, the one that teaches us God's word. Because without him as our teacher, it's not going to make sense. So the agency, the work of the Holy Spirit gives us a present hope. We also, as we wrapped up last week, we looked at the fact that we have a reliable hope. And I purposely avoided a lengthy discussion on predestiny versus and election versus free will and all of that. I mean, I gave you a rudimentary understanding of that because I think that's enough. You got to realize Paul wasn't writing to a theology class. He was writing to a church. He was writing to encourage them in the hope that they have. And, And essentially, he says, you have a reliable hope, seeing that in God's foreknowledge, he works all things past, present, and future for our good. 
We talked about Joseph last week and how his life is, is a wonderful example. It, talking about when he was dumped in the hole by his brothers and then sold into slavery and then went to prison and then through God's providential hand was raised up as a powerful man in Egypt and his brothers coming and kind of being freaked out when their dad died thinking, well, yeah, Joseph's probably going to kill us now. And then coming to him and him saying, look, you meant it for evil against me, but God, all this time, all these years, he's been working, he's been moving, he's been orchestrating circumstances, and he's been working it for good. Because he wanted to save our family, is what he says. So essentially, we apply that to our lives, and we say, you know what, Lord, I don't understand the trial I'm going through. I don't understand what you're doing in this situation. I don't know what's happening in the lives of my family who are hurting or suffering. But I do know this, that you're good, that you're merciful, you're compassionate, you're loving, you're kind, and that you're working things for good, even and especially when I don't understand it and I don't see it. Great encouragement, folks. So these are the things that Paul's referring to when he's asked this first of seven questions. What shall we say to these things? That's what it is. So now on to his second question. If God is for us, who could be against us? Now, if all we had were the first three chapters, as I mentioned, where he he speaks the gospel and he goes, the wrath of God is revealed and and all of that. And he goes on and, and one by one sort of knocks the pins out of anybody and everybody's thoughts on how they could come to God on their own. If that's where we end it, we might conclude that God is against us. As I mentioned, I think it's remarkable that he goes from the good news, the gospel, the greatest news in all of humanity to the worst news that you don't cut it. But he's not against us. When you think about the lengths that God has gone to in saving man from his own wrath and equipping his own to live this different kind of life that we've been talking about, who could possibly doubt that God is for us. He is absolutely for us. He is for you, regardless of what you're going through, regardless of the the severity of that trial or the suffering that we endure. Verse 32, his third question here, he says, he who didn't spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Think about it. If God's love is so great, that he gave his only begotten son, he certainly won't hesitate to give us good things, all good things, leading to uh, our being conformed, obviously in context in this passage, to the image of his son. That, folks, this is our sanctification. Now, I want to just make a note here and, and, and trust that none of you are going down the lines of the prosperity doctrines that are floating around out there or you know, some of the garbage. There's a lot of, there's a lot of spiritual hype out there. This is not saying that we have some kind of a blank check or a perverse right to treat God like some sort of a cosmic slot machine. Well, I commanded it, so therefore it's mine. No, that's that's not it. Remember, we've looked at it here in Romans. We are in his debt. He is not in ours. He will be a debtor to no man. Horrible theology going around out there. Horrible doctrine asserting that we somehow can boss God around and that we can command these material blessings. 
Does he bless? Yeah. But according to his sovereign will, not according to my pleadings. Got to keep that in mind, folks. So on to verse 34, he says, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Again, looking at the doctrine of election, the elect that he's referring to here are those who have chosen Christ. Very simple. Don't need to get real complicated about it. Uh, one of the things I learned in, in Bible school was, you know, when you're in doubt, look at the simplest possible explanation. It's a rule of Bible study, Bible interpretation, hermeneutics. Look for the simplest explanation. What I see here, again, he's writing to a church, not a theology class. He's encouraging them. He's giving them hope. And he's saying, look, there are those people who are the elect. And the elect, by the way, is you. And if you want to know if you're elect and you don't know, well, then you better choose Christ. That's the simple explanation. And it really fits with what he's saying here. So as, as he, we look at this, when he says, who'll bring a charge against God's elect? The, the picture here is that of a courtroom. This is like, it's a legal type. The way it's laid out is, is it's, it's making a formal accusation against a defendant. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, we read, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. It gives us a bit of an idea. It reveals something about the current work of the enemy on this earth. He says at that point into the future, the end of the age, he's been cast down. But in the meantime, he accuses day and night. He is the one who levels the accusation in this courtroom setting because he's the accuser of the brethren. Interesting. I thought about this a lot as I was preparing for this morning. Most of the time, his accusations are valid. None of us have arrived. All of us struggle. We all go through. We're all broken in ways. There are things in our lives that, that God is, I mean, in his agenda for our lives. Again, we're growing, but we're not there. And, and, and he is right there to point his finger, to condemn, to try to condemn, to accuse us before God. Because they're based on a believer's sinfulness. But Satan's accusations will be thrown out. They will not stand in court. They can't. Because why? Because God is the one who justifies. We've looked at that just as if I'd never sinned. But way beyond that, the judge himself has justified, declared the accused person righteous in his eyes on the basis of their faith in Jesus. So if you belong to Christ, the accuser, he can accuse you all day long. But the moment that that happens... As a result of every accusation, it's dismissed. It can't stand. Satan's case is thrown out. No one can bring a single charge that will stand. Part of what it means to have good news. So what does that mean in practical terms for me? Yeah, I understand this courtroom scene and all of that. Look at verse 34, because it means everything. He says, who is he who condemns? Is it Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us? Still in the courtroom, Jesus is pictured here 
sitting at the right hand of the Father, the ultimate judge. Continually interceding is how this is rendered. I mean, the, the tense is a present tense. It's a present continual tense. So what it's saying is that when I sin, when I blow it, that Jesus says, no, Father, no, that's on me. I paid the price for that already. His accusation can't stand. Acquittal is the only other option. In First John chapter 2, we read uh, in verse 1 and 2, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation of our, for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the whole world. John is saying there that we have the greatest attorney in the universe. Want a good lawyer? You've got one. His name is Jesus. But he's also saying that Jesus has already paid the price. He has already worn the wrath of God. What propitiation means is to absorb wrath. When when Jesus hung on that cross, and we don't understand that there was some kind of a tearing in God himself, and when he hung on that cross and, and, and he was all alone, perhaps probably for the first time in his entire life, and he cried out, why have you forsaken me? He was wearing the wrath of God for your sin and for mine. Powerful scene. That's the propitiate. As the propitiate, as Jesus being my propitiate, I can't be charged for the same crime, the same offense that he already paid for. Our judicial system calls this double jeopardy. And did you know that when Satan wants to accuse you, it's a, it is absolutely a condition of double jeopardy. You can't be tried for something that you have already been acquitted for. That's just the way it is. Past, present, and future. When Jesus died for my sins, he didn't die for all of them, but that one. He died for all of them. And now being acquitted the enemy's accusations cannot stand. Legally, judicially, they cannot stand. They have to be dismissed. They have to be thrown out. I've already been, in that sense, tried for that. And Jesus has said, I, I took the penalty for that. So now, therefore, you're free. Free to go. This is why Paul, by the way, in verse 1 of this chapter, confidently states that there's now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So in verse 35, he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now the sixth question speaks not only of our love for Christ, which is true, but especially it looks at his love for us. Who can separate us from the love that Jesus, that Christ has for us? And we've talked about it in previous studies that often in the middle of tough circumstances, People can begin to assume that God's not there, that he doesn't care, that he's not listening, that I don't know what's going on. Uh, Maybe he's angry, he's uncaring, he's unloving, he's distant. In this rhetorical question, Paul's saying that, that there's no one in creation who could come between you and Jesus. Own this, church. It's not an unbelieving spouse. It's not angry relatives. It's not co-workers. It's not the governor, especially not the governor, the government. There isn't a person or an institution on earth, is what he's saying, that could come between you and the Lord Jesus and his love for you. 
It is a sturdy, reliable, enduring love that he has. Doesn't mean that they won't try. <laughs> I look at the Equality Act that's in Congress, has been sitting on the desk in Congress, all of that, and I'm not going to get go down some big political rant here. But I look at what is being attempted in our culture, in our country, in our nation, in our political system, in our, especially if you look at our culture. The challenges coming against the church are mounting. And, and don't be deceived. Part of my job as a shepherd, as an under-shepherd to the great shepherd, is to make sure that you understand there's a lot on the line right now. It won't take much for the God of this world to have his way and for us to come under a major persecution in this country. See it happening in countries around us that I never would have thought. So that's not going to separate. Paul's saying, he's saying there's nothing, no institution, nobody can separate you from the love of Christ. But he also doesn't say that they won't try. I think about Jesus when he says, he's there at Caesarea Philippi and, and with his guys, at, and he says, you know, on this rock, on this foundational truth that Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, I'm going to build my church. And then he says, in the gates of hell, which is, it's actually, it's a big hole in the base of Mount Hermon there, filled with water. And, and, and it was known as the the, the gateway to the underworld, to the netherworld, where the spirits came and went. And, and I believe he pointed when he said, the gates of hell won't prevail against my church. Again, he didn't tell his guys there that they wouldn't try because they've been trying ever since. Paul is saying here, this is not going to work. You you are in really good shape at the end of the day. Uh, I look at contemporary things. I remember we... Uh, looked at a video not long ago where they, they, and they didn't show the whole graphic thing, but remember the, was it 20 something Coptic Christians, the Egyptian Christians that, that the, the Muslim extremists took and put them in all in orange jumpsuits and lined them up on the shore. And then they cut each one's throat. It was horrific. Just, just a shadow of what's going on out there. I think about the things that Wes Bentley and, and his group with far reaching ministries are going through. They've seen it. And they're in the front lines as part of why I'm convinced that that's a, a ministry worth supporting. Hasn't come fully to our shores, but it's here. And it's looking to gain traction. Verse 35, uh, the second half, the seventh question that he has. He says, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Will those do it? Will those separate us from God's love, from Jesus's love? In the second, seventh question, it's as though Paul's searching for any circumstances. It's like he's saying, all right, is there anything out there? Any difficulty, any amount of suffering that could come between you and Jesus's love for you? Absolutely a rhetorical question because we know that the answer is absolutely not. I really, I, I like the way that this verse is rendered in the New Living Translation. I'm going to read it to you. Uh, because it, it, it kind of clarifies some things. He says, can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? Can anything? No. They're all questions that are rhetorical, all of these things. And yet the answer is a resolute no. Verse 36, he says, 
Uh, here, he, as it is written, and this is where he does a dive back into the Old Testament, because again, he's using the word of God to support the things he's saying here. And that's not a bad practice. As we spend time in God's word, as we plumb the depths of his word, and his word gets into us, then it can come out in times where we need to apply it to the things that we're going through. That's why he says, as it is written, Quoting Psalm 44, verse 22, he says, For your sakes were killed all day long, and were accounted as sheep for the slaughter. So he consults God's word as he reaches back into Israel's history. And his point is this. If any amount of suffering could separate a believer from the love of Christ, then that separation would have occurred back then as well as now. Yet, then and now, nothing can separate us from that love. So the question then becomes, is going through the things which are coming upon us pointless? If I'm, I'm just totally assured of God's love and that's it, and I'm going through stuff, is that a pointless exercise? Absolutely not. In our first study, we talked about climbing tools uh, for the ascent. And we looked at Romans 8 as Everest and, and the climbing tools, the tools we need to climb the mountain in these many hikes that we've taken up the mountain. And and I'm telling you folks, we're at the summit. This is as high as it gets and it's glorious. Through the things that we've been studying, remember these are the tools that I talked about. We want to know Jesus. We want knowledge. We want to know him. We want to learn to live according to the power of his spirit dwelling within. Through that knowledge, we want to possess greater understanding of his purposes and his ways in our lives. Very important that we don't just let it sit there as knowledge. And I can, in that, I can just give you a good book report. But as we apply that knowledge, we want to understand how that works in our lives, how he works in our lives. So we go from from knowledge to understanding. And now in that understanding, we want to gain godly wisdom in the practical practical application of God's word in our lives also. And we talk about that, folks, a lot. We talk about, you know, we want to apply God's word to our lives. And that's absolutely true. It's a necessary part of our sanctification, of our growing in the Lord. But I also started thinking about this. We want to apply our lives to God's word. I think both of those mix. Yes, I apply his word to my life. Lord, help me to understand, to discern what's going on in this situation. And in a larger sense, I want to apply myself to your word because I know that there I'm going to find answers. Folks, I tell you, I I tell this church often, we have answers. And it's not just our church, but it is because we are committed to the verse by verse exposition of God's word. I want to apply myself to God's word. Because I know that in that, my life will make sense. In that, when I'm dealing with somebody that's overwhelmed with some deal, that I am grounded and I can come and I can actually minister to that person. I can I can say, look, this is what God has to say about that. I can't do it if I am not immersed in his word, if I am not applying myself to his word. So I just encourage you. Apply yourself to the word of God and apply the word of God to yourself. Both of those things are true. We live in a world where there's increasing stress. 
We live in a world where we're seeing more and more people not wanting to play church. You know, and just for what it's worth, this is free, not in my notes. I could come in, I could paint the, the and I'm, this isn't an indictment on anybody. It's just saying that we want to keep the main thing, the main thing. I could come in and, and, and I could paint the, the, the back wall black. And we could put a bunch of LED lights up. Ron teases me. He sent me an Amazon link for a fog machine one time. <laughs> it, yeah, exactly. I mean, we could do all of the stuff, and 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 there's nothing intrinsically wrong with that. But if that replaces this, we've missed it. And that's not being an old-fashioned preacher. That is just saying that we've got to keep the main thing, the main thing. I know that that those kind of things they can they can attract they can tickle the ears, and yet we want to remain committed to the Word of God. Its application in our lives and our lives applied to its uh, relevance for us. Why? Because we want to be conformed to the image of His Son. It comes back to that. We looked at that last week. Romans 8.28, God causes all things to work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. 8.29, that purpose is being conformed to the image of his son. That's why I told you that it's we don't have learning to think like Jesus because it's a tagline, a handy way to just kind of state something trendy for our church. No, we want to learn to think like Jesus. We're all in process. And as we avail ourselves to the word of God, that happens. So we've used this metaphor of climbing Everest throughout these seven studies in chapter eight. It served us well. I'm a visual person, spent years in graphic arts, and and I just just connect with things visually. That's part of why we do slides and speaking. It's been a good metaphor, but at this point, the parallel that it has and its usefulness has to end as we gain knowledge which leads to understanding, which leads to wisdom. We learn the reality that we operate from the top of the mountain. We're not trying to get there. We operate from the top, not towards it. Folks, if you want to get caught up in a works-based mentality, you're going to always be trying to work your way up the mountain. That is not what Paul is saying here. I use that because there was a lot of work to do, a lot of time, a lot of hikes that we had to break this into many studies so that we could actually make sense, a little bit of sense out of this passage. But he says here in verse 37, and this is part of uh, what I call the, just the, just the cry of triumph. Just the, just the, the, yes, the yes. It's like, you know, you go through something and you see God move and you, yes, or you read something and it's like, oh man, that is so good. That's where Paul is at when he's writing this. Without question. He says, in all these things, in verse 37, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In all these things, not just the list in verse 35, but in all the trials, in all the suffering, in all of the pressures that we experience in our lives. He's saying, you are more than conquerors. The Greek word here is hupernikeo. And what it means is you are hyper conquerors. That's literally how it translates. But what it literally means is to be completely and overwhelmingly victorious 
in an ongoing, continual, present tense manner. That's how it's constructed in the original language. This isn't something that you were more than conqueror on Sunday morning. We are more than, we are hyper conquerors. We operate from victory. We're not operating towards victory. That victory was won at the cross of Jesus Christ. And folks, it has as as much relevance today as it did 2,000 years ago. He is my strength. God has fought the battle on our behalf. We don't operate towards it. We operate from it. We don't operate trying to climb the mountain. We live from the top of the mountain. Now, if you're thinking, well, it's kind of cold and the air is thin up there, you're still in the metaphor. Get out of that. <laughs> it's not about trying. We've looked at that. It's not about trying to be a better Christian. It's about simply being a child of God. The, the, the head trips that I've gone through over the years, you know, like when I get there, I will have arrived. I'll be really spiritual then. Nonsense. You're accepted in the beloved just the way you are today. Right now, this morning, nothing can separate you from God's love in that. Because it's all about the cross, the victory that's been fought and won. We operate from that place. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse, verses 8 to 10, he says, we're hard-pressed on every side, yet we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. Saying the same thing there as what Paul says here is that we may be conformed to the image of his son, that Jesus would show up, that I would die to myself and I die daily is what Paul says. And in that, as I grow, I am more and more like my master having grace for others, being forgiving, being long-suffering, patient. All of those attributes that he wants to share with us. Folks, God, by his Holy Spirit, is nearer to us than he has ever been. Guaranteed. He he is an ever-present help in time of need, is what the Bible tells us. Leaning into that as a fact, we learn to relax. We learn to surrender to him, to rely on him in whatever the difficulty is because he's good and he's loving and he's kind and compassionate and merciful and gracious. That's how we know that the victory is already ours. Now, verses 38 and 39, they form one statement. So I'm going to read them together. He says, for I'm persuaded. I love that. I am absolutely persuaded. I'm convinced. That's what he's saying that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, that means demons, by the way, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, in case I miss something, (laughs) shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Do you know Jesus this morning? Because if you do, this applies. If you don't, this can apply. You can step from death to life, eternal death to eternal life. You can step from darkness to light. Perhaps you're catching this online and you don't know Christ. It's a simple transaction. It says turn from your old life. Turn from that life that profited you nothing. 
Repent of your sins. Ask him to forgive you for your sins. The Bible tells us he will. Every single one of them, past, present, and future, as we've been talking about here. Ask him to come into your life because he will give you an understanding and a meaning to your life that you have never, ever possessed. That's guaranteed. That's the essence of the gospel that we talked about there in chapter one. He says, I'm persuaded. The Greek word is pietho. It means to come to believe the certainty of something on the basis of being absolutely convinced to be certain. Came across a quote that I appreciate, said it better than I could, so I'm going to steal it. <laughs> I think I mentioned one time to you guys, if you study 10 people, you're a scholar. If you study one, you're a plagiarist. So I'm going to plagiarize. Um, he says, Paul ransacks the universe for something that might conceivably separate us from God's love and then dismisses the possibilities one by one. Death with all of its terrors, Done. Dismissed. Can it separate us from God? No. Life with all of its allurements. I'll tell you what. (laughs) We live in a world that is geared to just, the hook is thrown out constantly. Saying, come on, you will be a whole person only when you consume this or you buy that or you live this way or whatever it is. He says, that's not going to separate you. Angels, demons, supernatural and power and knowledge. Folks, don't try to battle Satan in your own strength. Not wise. But according to Ephesians chapter 6, we battled him in the armor of God. Love to go there, but we're running out of time. It's not about trying to take him on myself. It's about standing in the beloved. About standing, about my standing in Christ. Can't touch me won't separate his love from me. He says, powers, whether human tyrants or angelic adversaries. Folks, that's a bit of a mystery, but you know what? Spiritual warfare is real and it comes into play in our lives, often when we're not even thinking about it. He's saying that we have human tyrants. I know a few. (laughs) I'm not going to go there. No, seriously, we have human tyrants and we also have angelic adversaries. Both come to apply in our lives. We battle the world, this flesh, <laughs> and, and the, the enemy himself. As we identify those, how do we identify those? Because we are identifying with the word of God and we're able to see them more clearly. We are filled with his spirit and he gives us understanding. As we identify and resist those things, we see victory. Operating from that victory. Things present, he says. Those things that crash in upon us. That phone call in the middle of the night. That person that you know that is in such dire need. Can't separate me from the love of God. He says things to come. Those things that arouse my fear. You know, the fear is essentially, it, it, it is based in that which I don't yet know. We become fearful at times. How are the finances going to be if? What's going to happen when? I know that that person's upset with me. I don't know how to fix it. All of that. He says, none of that will separate you. They pull at us, don't they? All of us. But he said, that won't, he said, I am persuaded 
that none of these things can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. All throughout his letters, Paul reminds us of our own inadequacies in contrast to the adequacy of Christ through his indwelling spirit in us. I love what my friend said years ago. We're just little people, John. We're just little people and we're doing our best to work through this life. When we try to rely on our own strength, like Paul did in chapter 7, remember that? He says, oh man, I just, I do the things I don't want to do. I always do the things I don't want to do. I just, man, my life is just a total wreck. Who will deliver me from this body of this death? That's life in his own strength. When we try to live that way, we sign up for utter defeat in life's battles. We are still victorious in God's eyes, but we make it hard. Yet, as we yield to the work of God's Spirit, that's what Romans 8 is about, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Victory, even in the harshest circumstance, even in the harshest battle, is assured. Because it's not based on what I'm doing or who I am. It's based on what he's doing and who he is. And no human circumstance, Paul is saying here, can change that. I want to close with, and I'm not going to offer any commentary. Well, maybe a little. (laughs) A few verses, Paul's prayer from Ephesians chapter 3. And it really sums up this passage. And I would just encourage you. As a matter of fact, let's bow our heads and our hearts before the Lord. Let's, uh, I'll just go right into praying as well when we're done. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees to the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height, to know the love of Christ that passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Father, that's our prayer this morning. Lord, we know that that's life at the top of the mountain. That's life, the, the, the abundant life that you guarantee, that you assure to every child of yours. Father, I'm thankful, Lord, that we've been able to spend this time in this, in this wonderful book, in this glorious chapter. I pray, Father, that as we meditate, as we dwell on the truths that are revealed in it, that our lives would be enriched. God, thank you that we don't operate towards victory. We're not fighting this thing out. It's not about duking it out. But they operate, we operate from victory. Because you, Jesus, are king. have already done the battle and prevailed. Our hearts are grateful this morning. We pray, Father, by your spirit that you would guide and direct. You'd bring to our remembrance the things that you want us to apply to our lives. We commit it to you. We thank you. And we love you. In Jesus' name.